I'm a bird named after an insect, Mike. And I'm a puppy just hungry for shoes, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse, hold on tight, for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom, Animalia! Oh, hey, Meredith. How you doing? Oh, hey, Mike. How's it going? Pretty good, thanks. Great. Have you had a good week in animals? I sure have. I did have some encounters that got me thinking. Again, about the Little Mermaid. I was talking about the Little Mermaid and potentially the inaccuracy of the kinds of electric eels featured in that movie. Right, yes. But I was also thinking about another potential inaccuracy because... Recently, I had the privilege to spend some time around some seagulls, and I think about seagulls' personalities when you encounter them on the beach. They're very stern. They look like they mean business. They will fuck up your bag of snacks. They will steal snacks straight from your hands. They will poop on you. They will squawk at you. They will mockingly laugh at you and throw their heads back while they laugh. They're crazy. But then I think about Scuttle from Little Mermaid, And he's just so dopey and goofy and pretty good-natured. And that doesn't really match up with my own experience with seagulls at all. Yeah. Okay. So are you further taking the position that The Little Mermaid is not an accurate representation of the kingdom Animalia? I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't paint, paint it with such broad strokes. But I do feel that... Um, Maybe they've bent some animal facts a bit to fit their drama, in which case I can't really fault them for that because it's a great story and it's a great movie. Sure. So I think in this case, it's like admissible if the product is good. Okay. Um, But I think we also need to call it out. Yeah. Okay. So this is a call. This is turning into a call out podcast. It's what we've been driving towards this whole time. (laughs) Uh, Well, um, my weekend animals was pretty fun, I guess. I met a dog that I really like. My friend Max has a dog, and the dog's name is Fricka. Yeah. Fricka, maybe. And I don't know exactly what the breed situation is with Fricka, but I would say she's kind of a medium-sized dog, you know, maybe a little smaller than Tyson, Mm -hmm. if you will. And she's kind of got this sort of, like, white, blonde sort of vibe Mm -hmm. and she's getting treated for heartworms okay which is kind of intense because like apparently the dog can't exercise for several months after they are treated for heartworms which is kind of crazy oh wow but she had to get her fur cut so that they could do whatever procedure on her so she has this patch of fur cut on her back cut out and with the color of her hair and her very angular haircut moment, like, buzzed down. <laughs> she was giving very strong Yolandi vibes from Die Antford, the 
rap rave group. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of fun. It was like a Yolandi pooch, which definitely was an enjoyable experience for me. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. She didn't really rap like Yolandi, and she didn't really have the same kind of like intense energy. I would say she was actually quite subdued. It was more of like a visual thing. So I guess in that sense, it, you know, fails to pass your sort of like accuracy of Disney movies test. So I would like to put a little asterisk there for our Yolandi truthers. Fair enough. But I mean, I think as a dog that's spending time around people, you wouldn't want it to be like too aggressive and in your face. Right. That level of energy all the time. So it seems like you probably got the better end of the that yeah, stick. Yeah, I definitely feel that way. Yeah, you get all of the best of the the Yolandi visuals, but none of the aggression. Yeah. Well, cool. Great weekend animals for both of us, I guess. <laughs> Great pondering. Yeah. I mean, I, should we just kick right into it? I think we definitely should. Ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. And Amelia. Obvi. Philo. Cordata. Spines are actually curvy. Class. Mammalia. Fur makes me purr. Order. Carnivora. Meat is yum, yum, yum. Family. Felidae. Kitties. Meow, meow. Genus. Lynx. Not a sphinx nor a minx. Species. Rufus. It's not Rufus Wainwright. It's the Bobcat. Rawr. <gasps> bobcats. Yeah, Bobcats. Ooh, Buckle this is so exciting. Up. <sighs> Meredith. Uh, so quick tax facts, kingdom, animalia, phylum, chordata. Once again, we have spines or dorsal nerve cords. Class mammalia, we are mammals. We know about mammals. Order carnivora, we're back. We have these placental mammals. They primarily eat flesh. We have cats, dogs, bears, mustelids, skunks, pinnipedia, hyenas, mongoose. All of those are carnivora. Family, felidae, cats. <laughs> the subfamily, felinae, is the small kitties, which have a bony hyoid, which allows them to purr but not roar. <gasps> Like our kitty friends that live in our house with us. Exactly. Then we get to the genus lynx. There are four species of lynx. We have the Iberian lynx, the Eurasian lynx, the Canada lynx, and then the red lynx, a.k.a. the bobcat. Okay. Actually, I've never really put that together. I didn't realize that the bobcat and the lynx were uh, used interchangeably, I guess, in, you know, the way I hear these cats discussed. Yeah. In terms of them being native, the ones native to the United States. Sure. Yeah. I did not know that bobcats and lynx are, in fact, the same genus. That was a new bit of information for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And then the species rufus. Again, the rufus refers to the color. It's from Latin. It means redheaded. We had our rufus Chinese horseshoe bat. We've had a number of rufus creatures. The canis rufus, canis rufus, canis rufus, arf, arf, arf. (laughs) The red wolf, the genesis of the taxonomy cheer. Yes. And then wasn't the pelt, that was when we encountered it, was it with the Pell's fishing owl because they have a rufus. Pelage. Pelage. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So the bobcat's range is through much of North America. It goes throughout the U.S. and up into Canada. It gets about a third of the way through the southernmost provinces of Canada, 
And then north of that is where the Canada lynx lives, and they kind of overlap a little bit. Cool. And then the bobcats range extends down into Mexico, most of Mexico, in fact, to about Mexico City. It doesn't quite get all the way to the Yucatan, but it does get pretty close. Okay. And there are 13 subspecies across the range, but these divisions of the 13 subspecies have been challenged because there's a lack of clear geographical breaks in their ranges, and the subspecies differences is pretty minor. Our friends in the cat classification task force of the cat <laughs> specialist group only recognize two subspecies based on phylogeographic and genetic studies. And the division is east of the Great Plains and west of the Great Plains. Okay. Okay. There is a third subspecies, the status of which is under review, and that would be the Mexican bobcat. And I have to say, when I was looking at their range, I was thinking, like, that's a pretty significant change in climate from mid-Canada all the way down to essentially nearly the Yucatan. And so when I saw that there were the two subspecies, that was my first thought was, well, what what about in Mexico when we get significantly closer to the equator? Is it the same species that's living down there that can also weather the cold Canadian winters. So I'm a little curious to kind of get up to the minute (laughs) updates from the cat classification task force regarding this. (laughs) Do they like live tweet their updates? Yeah. It's actually, um, they go live on Instagram. (laughs) Oh man. But what's interesting is it's actually the very, a very, very, very similar um, geographical coverage as the great blue heron. Right. Right. It isn't. It's almost identical the way you describe it. Yeah, it's it's definitely similar, you know, range of the heron. It's a iconic new world yeah. creature, you know, that's has a expansive habitat. Yeah. It's it's believed that the bobcat evolved from the Eurasian lynx which crossed into North America via the Bering Land Bridge in the Pleistocene. And about 20,000 years ago, they evolved into the modern bobcats. And then the Canadian lynx, it's believed that a second population arrived from Asia and settled in the north. And that's what developed into the Canadian lynx. The bobcat refers to its stubby or bobbed tail. They don't have a long tail. The tail's only about four to eight inches long, whereas the creature is 20 to 50 inches long from the head to the base of the stubby tail. It's about twice the size of a typical house cat. But again, if you imagine like a house cat's tail is like 14 inches long. You know what I mean? So like yeah. a four to eight inch long tail on a creature twice as big as a house cat is pretty silly. Yeah, they are really silly. They're one to two feet tall at the shoulders and males range from 13 to 40 pounds and females are slightly smaller, eight to 34 pounds. The largest bobcat on record is 49 pounds. And there are unverified reports that they've reached 60 pounds. Whoa. Yeah. It's very muscular. It has hind legs that are longer than the front, which makes its gait kind of weird. Yeah. I can totally picture it. Mm-hmm. And then the babies, when they're born, they weigh half a pound and are about 10 inches in length. And by their first birthday, they'll weigh about five pounds. Cute. I know. <laughs> so they're mostly crepuscular, which means they're generally active during twilight will maintain a pretty sizable range 
and it will move about two to seven miles along its habitual route wow. uh, every evening. So they'll keep on the move from about three hours before sunset until about midnight. So, you know, evening. And then they'll be active again before dawn until about three hours after sunrise. And in the fall and winter, they tend to be more diurnal, which is to say active during the day. And that's in response to the habits of their prey, which tend to be more active during the day. Along their habitual route, they'll maintain numerous homes, a main den, and then numerous auxiliary shelters on the outer extent of their range. They'll pick a hollow log, a bush pile, a thicket. They'll hide under a ledge. And they like to make their stinky den smell like them. (laughs) Stinky dens. Yeah. They're generally solitary, but ranges will overlap. Males tend to be tolerant of overlap, but females will rarely wander into others' ranges. And then two or more females may reside within a male's home range. And dominance hierarchies are often established when the territories overlap. So some transient individuals will be excluded from favored areas. To eat, they like insects, rabbits, cotton rats, birds like swans, fledglings, eggs. They're an opportunistic predator that readily varies its prey selection. It will hunt in different ways for different creatures. For small animals, it will lie, crouch, and just wait for the victims to wander close. But for a larger creature like a geese or a rabbit or hare, It'll take cover and then jump into attack them from 20 to 35 feet away. They can kill deer, and if they do, they will eat its fill and then bury the carcass under snow or leaves, and then will return to that several times to feed. Hmm. They live about seven years. The oldest cat on record is 16 years old. The oldest captive cat lived to be 32 They'll typically begin breeding by their second summer. Sperm production begins by September or October, and the (laughs) male is fertile into the summer. Typically, a dominant male travels with a female and mates with her several times, generally from winter to early spring. So just, you know, to underscore that, the... Right now is about when the male's bobcats are beginning to produce sperm, and they will uh, into the summer. Like, until next summer? Yes. Okay. And then they will generally be mating during the wintertime to the early springtime. Oh. The courting process involves bumping and chasing and ambushing. (laughs) And other males may be around for this, but they'll generally remain uninvolved. (laughs) Looky-loos. And females may mate with multiple males. Okay. They're mostly silent except during courtship when they'll (laughs) let out screams, hisses, or other sounds. Wow. Yeah. And then obviously they're, you know, important figures in uh, Native American culture, indigenous culture. There's a Shawnee tale about the bobcat being outwitted by a rabbit, which gives rise to the bobcat's spots. After the bobcat traps the rabbit in the tree, the bobcat is persuaded to build a fire only to have the embers scatter on its fur, leaving it singed with dark brown spots. The Mojave believed that dreaming habitually of beings or objects would afford them their characteristics as supernatural powers. So dreaming of two deities, the cougar and the lynx, they thought, would grant them superior hunting skills. European colonizers also admired the cat for its ferocity and grace, and 
in the United States, it rests prominently in the anthology of national folklore. It's a creature that's used as mascots for sports teams. I've played mm-hmm. on a Bobcat team before. <laughs> We're both from Ohio. Ohio University is the Bobcats. You know. Yes. There was a dirt dome grave excavation in the 1980s along the Illinois River, which revealed a complete skeleton of a young bobcat along with a collar made of bone pendants and shell beads that had been buried by the Hopewell culture. Oh. And the type and place of the burial indicates that this is potentially a tamed and cherished pet with possible spiritual significance. The Hopewell normally buried their dogs with them, so the bones were initially identified as remains of a puppy, but dogs were usually buried close to the village and not in the mounds themselves. So it's the only, this is the only wildcat decorated burial on the archaeological record, but it's noteworthy yeah. for that oh, reason. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you have any bobcat queries, questions, concerns, complaints, traumas? Oh, man. I just want to watch videos of like big cats now. I just love big cats. Yeah. Big cats are fun. They are really fun. Well, it just made me think of, um, there would be time, I would just, Often nights, like, look out the window and would see the neighborhood cats, like, patrolling around, you know, like, just at dusk and even into the night sometimes, just like the lynx does or the bobcat. Right. Yeah, one in the same. Yeah. So it's just funny how we have these, like, little um, little big cats in our homes and in our neighborhoods. Yeah. It's super cool. Cats are everywhere. I'm so thankful for that. Myself also. <laughs> that was great. Thanks. Let's take a break. Yes. You've clawed your way to the top. You fought off aspiring usurpers. You're responsible for an entire colony. And ensuring a proper eusocial environment. And as one of the only eusocial mammals, you have unique needs. And Brand Clubby has you covered. With heterocephalus demidorms, group sleeping solutions for naked mole rat colonies. Heterocephalus dummy dorms are a modular solution for expanding accommodations for workers, breeding males, and even a nursery for pups. The pup module is expandable to accommodate the variable size of litters, accommodating up to 25 pups. Breeding male modules double as worker modules with interchangeable deluxe and basic accommodations. Treat your breeding males like the princes they will never become, since in your colony, the queen reigns supreme. Use code HOUSING IS A RODENT'S RIGHT for 20% off at checkout. Okay, so I have just been... So this is this. Oh, my goodness. This story has just been burning a hole in my little pocket for the past two weeks. Yeah, it's true. Because right before we had our little hiatus, Mike and I together had a really incredible creature encounter. Yeah, it's true. We met up in a park to, uh, you know, see one another. And in the park, as we were... as we were talking to one another, we saw a person uh, roll up, an, an old woman, an older woman in a wheelchair, and she had this gorgeous green parrot on her chair. And so, of course, we were completely obsessed. And I was like, Meredith, there's a bird over there. And then Meredith immediately. You said bird, bird alert. alert. Yeah. <laughs> I said bird alert. And Meredith was just like, oh my God. <laughs> And the woman was so nice, and she let you hold the bird. 
And I know she, I wasn't ready for that. Well, she kind of signaled, she saw my enthusiasm and signaled me to come over. And so I ran over with my mask, of course, we were both uh-huh. masked. And um, I ran over just expecting to like talk to her about the bird, but she like, picked him up and like held him out so I could have him on my arm. And it was like the coolest thing ever feeling his little claws on my arm. Yeah. That was crazy. And Mike held him too. Uh-huh. That's right. And we got some photos, which will be available on Instagram. Absolutely. The bird's name was Cricket, which is the inspiration for my name at the top of the episode. It was a bird named after an insect. And it was so perfect because you had just on the episode we had just uh, most recently recorded, you had done the cricket. It's true. As your animal. It's true. So it was like this grand confluence of the universe. It was really quite beautiful. Yeah, it really was. And it was a bird, which is right up your alley. Totally. And that woman was very nice. It was very, this has been such a strange time of limited social interactions, especially with strangers. Yes. And it was nice (laughs) to just have this kind of little serene moment of bird joy. And then certainly we, you know, we returned to our conversation and the woman ended up just taking a nap with her bird. (laughs) It was really lovely. She just came to the park to take a little nap with her bird. Just he just sat ever so lovingly on her shoulder and took a little nap intermittently. I had my eye on him and he was just kind of I would see his little eyes closed. Oh, and she gave me a cookie to feed him to get him to talk. So he he wasn't super chatty, but I heard some hellos she said that he was chattier at home and i mean as i believe docile a creature to just kind of sit on the corner of an electric wheelchair as she rolls to the park you know without a leash or a lead or anything like as as kind of chill as that creature is it still is a bit overwhelming to be like out of your home and surrounded by strangers so totally holding you and squealing in your yeah. face as I yeah was. exactly <laughs> oh but cricket and his owner were so sweet i think her name was lynn I, I think you're right it was it i was just trying to remember I, i'm pretty sure that's right yeah but anyway i just couldn't wait to talk about it on here i know it was beautiful uh, check out the beautiful. instagram at animal fan club Pod oh yeah for some cricket photos cannot wait to share Texana you. Texana we. Texana who. Texana me. Kingdom. In Amelia, it's what you tuned in for. Phylum. Arthropoda. Head, thorax, abdomen. Class. Insecta. Over a million described species. Order. Diptera. Only true flies allowed. Family. Musidae, welcome to the fly family. Genus. Musca, buzz, buzz in your face. Species. Musca domestica. Ooh, yum is that feces, and it must be the house fly. Meredith, we just decided that we wanted to be fly whispers, and now here we are talking about the horse fly. This is kind of perfect, isn't it? The house fly. Be different than the horse fly, I believe. Yes. I believe. Yes. Well, yes, it was horse whisperer or fly whisperer. Yes. And we chose fly whisperer. Definitely. And now we're going to figure out a little bit more about them in case we have any aspiring fly whisperers out there. I'm excited. Yes. 
actually, I really appreciated doing this report because they are, as we discussed last week, something we encounter so frequently. And it was just kind of nice to know a little bit more what's going on with them. So I can have a little bit more respect for this thing that we often associate with such pestitude. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So as far as tax facts, we know arthropoda, so things with head, thorax, abdomen, exoskeletons, all that stuff. Insecta, aka hexapods, six-legged, winged creatures. And then we get to diptera, and this is where only true flies allowed. So value judgment alert. So that is referring to insects that have two, essentially a single pair of wings to fly with. So in this case, in terms of diptera, the name of this order, so the di, the di equals two, and then the terra, not terra as in like earth, but p-t-e-r-a, I believe, which is Greek for wings. Um, So a single pair of wings to fly. So to be a true fly, you got to be a diptera. All right. So as far as what the difference is or how it becomes more specific, moving down to species between family and genus, I don't really know. It's very unclear. The genus, family distinctions, it was a language I didn't understand. So we might need to do a um, creature feature sometime where I spend more time getting really into breaking these family and genus distinctions down. Maybe I'll do that one day, but for today's purposes... I'm not really sure what the difference is. Yeah, I imagine that there's a lot of variation. Yes. Yes. So it was just hard to make sense of in a way that's like easy, one, to digest and easy, two, to communicate in a podcast form. So I was like, it's fine. We can just move on to the things that we might be able to see happening around us in terms of fly life. Sure. So... Interesting things about the common house fly, the Musca domestica. So this is the insect with the largest distribution worldwide. And so they've kind of accompanied human migration across the globe and essentially benefit from that relationship. So this is a uh, vocab word alert. So flies could be called synanthropes or I guess, engaging in synanthropic behavior, meaning like a wild animal or a plant that benefits from association with humans and artificial habitats. So man-made habitats like houses, farms, gardens, trash dumps, things like that. Mm. So because of these sorts of habitats that are um, ideal conditions for fly life that humans have created, flies have essentially benefited from human expansion and growth. So in terms of their appearance, they're going to be gray to black, as we know, slightly hairy bodies, (laughs) and one pair of wings because they are diptera after all, red eyes, and um, this will be interesting to look for. So the red eyes are more widely set in the females and the eyes are more close together in the males. So that's one way to tell how to sex your flies. Yeah, I mean, I what an important thing to know how to do is sex a fly. I'm ready to pivot in my career to fly sexing. So in terms of eyes, they've got actually, we've talked about this before. So 
all the flies have three simple eyes. So that's like eyes that are essentially made up of one eye unit versus when those red bulging eyes that we associate with flies, those are actually compound eyes. So you can think of those as like thousands of little eye units or the simple eyes on the center of their head are just one of those units, but there's three of them. So three simple eyes and then two, those two big red compound eyes um, that are able to kind of sense um, movement and changes in light. And actually the flies experience visual, um, I guess, visual images, visual information. They're able to process it seven times faster than humans can which is why humans can have such a hard time catching flies. That's crazy. So the fly is just able to anticipate quicker and react quicker. Yeah. So they sense we're moving like before we even really sense it. Wow. Um, and can move away. That's how they know we're coming and they fly away so quickly because hmm. they just, I guess, kind of see us in slow motion maybe. I don't really know. I can't really wrap my head around like what that would be like. Sure. Anyhow, lines of inquiry. Um, <laughs> we're opening them. <laughs> so uh, moving on to one of my favorite topics, mouth parts. So houseflies, I, this is something I didn't know. So they live on like a, essentially a liquid diet or foods that they're able to kind of spread their saliva on to soften. So that's why we often see them on foods and things because they like liquids and they like to find things that they can turn into liquid <laughs> so they can then suck them up through these mouth parts. What are they called? I have it written down. It's a retractable and flexible proboscis, which sucks up food and also distributes saliva, which helps to soften the food. And then additionally, so what's a behavior we often think of with flies, it's that they're often like cleaning their arms off, right? They always look like they're cleaning themselves. Sure. Like rubbing arm on arm. So they have these things called chemoreceptors on their legs, which are essentially chemoreceptors are taste organs. So they have taste organs on their legs. So when you see them wiping their legs off, it's essentially like a palate cleanser. So it's like taking the former taste away so they're like ready to taste something new, newly, and freshly. Crazy. Yeah. Um, and then one other final really interesting thing that we can kind of think about as we watch flies crawl around is that on the bottoms of all of their six legs, they've got these like little adhesive pads as well as a claw. So it's these adhesive pads that essentially let them like – stick to the wall and climb up. Ugh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And then it's the little claw on the side of each leg that essentially rips the adhesive pad or like separates the adhesive pad from the wall. So there's this like dual action on each leg of stick, unclamp, stick, unclamp, stick, unclamp, stick, unclamp, stick, unclamp. Kind of like those suction cups that they use in like heist movies to get giant pieces of glass off the wall, you know? Yes. Yes, exactly. But there's also a separate like claw that helps rip it off mm. on the same appendage. Weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's something we can think about when we see these little flies crawling around on the, on the walls and ceiling. <laughs> okay. So really quickly, 
into life cycle and also love. The lady will only mate once in her life, which is typically about like two to four weeks. So if you see a fly like in your house and it just like never leaves, it's possible for it to be there up to like a month, which is crazy. But the lady mates once. She stores sperm for later use (laughs) and can lay up to 500 eggs and in her lifetime. And she typically lays them in batches of like 100 and likes to lay them in food waste, in carrion, and then poo-poo feces. Gross. Essentially, the life cycle is we've got eggs. Then we've got those little white maggots sick. Then you've got the little brown reddish pupae and then the adults come out of that. And like I said, live two to four weeks. Males become sexually mature after 16 hours. Jesus. That's a really fast puberty. It's very lucky for them. Yeah. It gives a whole new meaning to 16 candles. Totally. And then um, women become uh, sexually mature after 24 hours. It's like a day. Okay. So The mating ritual follows thusly. So the male will bump the female, known as the strike. He's attracted to do so by the female pheromone. And then if she's receptive, he will climb on her thorax. She'll vibrate her wings. He will stroke her head. And she pushes her ovipositor into his genital opening. Take that, heteronormativity. Huh. So she does the penetrating with her ovipositor. Yes. Into his genital opening. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was a fun remix. I was really happy to hear that. And then after that, the eggs are born. And so it begins that lifestyle egg, maggot, pupa, adult. Okay. Wild. So, I mean, we talked about their proclivity for feces and poo-poo and carrion and waste of all sorts. Dead stuff. Yeah, so because of how they like to crawl around on that kind of thing, they can be known as disease vectors. So can you, like, typhoid, cholera, salmonella, all that stuff. So it really kind of, I mean, I started this presentation off talking about, like, oh, we got to respect them, blah, blah, blah. But then you kind of think they are a liability in our lives. Sure. So, I mean, maybe approach them with caution, kind of appreciate their suction cup, appendages but from afar but maybe try to keep them away from like your face and your food and children because <laughs> they're, they're they're gross I mean, they're, they're very gross. gross there was one time i think this was back in hartford but somebody didn't empty the trash you know in a timely fashion mm-hmm. and all of a sudden in the kitchen, there were like 12 flies Ugh. that were just like kind of running up against the screen window. Yes. You know, the screen in the window? Yes. Because they were trying to get out from after being born in our trash bag. So I got out the vacuum cleaner and sucked them up with the hose and then immediately took the trash out. And that seemed to control the fly infestation moment. Yep. You got to hit the, oh man. I've been experiencing the same thing, but with fruit flies, which is a whole other, mm. whole other thing. Oh, man. They're impossible to get rid of. Yeah, they're the worst. But anyway, yeah. So flies, they're also, um, there's like really no particular validity to this, but fly or the presence of flies, people will sometimes attribute to like a supernatural presence or some sort of supernatural phenomena take that or leave it. But they're also used um, as what's called memento mori in art and other media. So memento mori 
referring to some sort of memento of the dead, reminding one of their impending mortality. So this is where you see things with like skulls or ravens or dead roses or sure. flies. <laughs> the least romantic of the bunch. Right, right. Yeah, so that's that's flies. Well, I love that. I feel like I learned a lot. Yeah, I was really intrigued by like the liquid diet yeah. thing. I didn't know that. Yeah, I remember hearing something about how they like puke all the time, you know? I remember that being like part of like a, a story that I had heard. You know, I, now that you say that, I remember that too, but I didn't come across anything about that, which isn't to say that it doesn't exist. It just wasn't in the um, sources I was consulting. Yeah, I guess don't believe everything you're told on the playground about flies. <laughs> right? That source of hot goss on every kid's playground, flies. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Break time? Yeah, I think it's time to buzz off. Buzz out of here, dude. One fish. Two fish. Red fish. New fish? Are you the new fish in school? Are you scared you won't fit in? Worried that the other fish won't like you? Well, we are here to tell you... Just be you, fish! Remember, there's no other fish like you. You've got talents no other fish has. You are special. You are seen. You rule, fish. Now get out there and make this school year the best one yet. Paid for by the Brand Clubby Positive Messaging Council for Animal Smiles. Feedback. It's definitely the feedback. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, delicious. Let's go. Do it. Okay. Caspian from Colorado wants to know, what animal has the biggest dreams? Whew. Oh, how sweet. I mean, the whale? The blue whale? <laughs> I mean, it's a very literal interpretation of it. They just have the bodily knowledge of being the biggest. Sure. So maybe that would translate into the, their dream reality. Sure, sure. I guess, are we, do we mean like in terms of like physical space or like range? Or do we mean in terms of like capability? Like is there, you know, somewhere is there like, I don't know, a small dung beetle that wants to become the next Tom Cruise or something like that? <laughs> would that be a bigger dream? That, I mean, that I think that would be a bigger dream. Yeah. Than blue whales dreaming about other blue whales. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I think it's hard for us to ascertain, Caspian. If I'm... Yeah, do insects dream? Do we know that? Are mammals the only creatures that dream? Right. I, I don't know. I guess that's... I'm sure there's research about this somewhere, but... There must be. I'm not aware of it at this very moment. So, for that reason, I think we would say it's great to think about animals having big dreams, but as to which ones have the biggest dreams, I I, I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah, it's a tough question, Caspian. I think that I do kind of agree with the blue whale to a certain extent, but I just also feel like that's a bit of an incomplete answer. Totally. So, is our official position that this is a further line of inquiry, but our initial reaction is the blue whale? Yeah. Yeah, 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 
Yeah, ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Rita from Oklahoma asks, what's a shrimp's primary concern? I would say getting those abs, getting those abs popping. Yeah, crunching, curling, undulation, popping abs. Yeah, popping, locking. Just a washboard. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, swole, swole fest, Y2K20, <laughs> hashtag no days off. Yeah, the shrimp never really does leg day or yeah. shoulder and back day. It, the shrimp's just all about core. Yeah, core day every day. Yeah, every day is core day. Yeah. Every day is Ab Ripper X. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. So, last question. Tammy from Brazil has the following question. Which segment is your favorite? The head, the thorax, or the abdomen? I'm going to go ahead and say thorax. Me too. Yeah. I mean, they're all important, you know. Can't have one without the other. But I think that the thorax is my favorite. Because that's kind of like where all the legs are. You know, the head and the abdomen are both attached to the thorax. True. It's the great uniter. Yes. It's like the conjunction of the... It's the word and of the bug world. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I was thinking thorax too because I really know the least about it. Like, I feel like head, you know... We know what goes on in the head. We know abdomens are generally like where stingers happen and where like gut digestion shit happens, I guess. I don't know. It's like the big part at the end. But the thorax, I'm not really sure. And also... You've got, like, the thorax. People refer to the thorax, like, on the human body, too. And I'm never really sure where the thorax starts or ends and where the abdomen begins. It's all very confounding. And for that reason, I think I like it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. A fish position. Thorax. (laughs) Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Well, that was great. That was great. Keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, animal blessings upon you and yours. Amen. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the animal 